growing the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what we do at Kung Fu Podcast. I'm your host, Sifu, T.W. Smith. I am so glad that you decided to spend part of your martial arts journey with me and taking me along with you, whether you're going out for a walk or in the car, getting ready for your workout. Wherever it is that you're listening to this program, I hope it brings a lot of value to you. I've been working pretty darn hard on this particular episode, primarily because I want to do it a real good job where we're looking at ranking violence in three dimensions. But i got a couple of things to get to before we get to the meat of the program. The first thing I want to mention is that in episode 107, I had mentioned Carl Thornton who specializes in child recovery services. He's also part of the World Combat Association, and that's uh, I'd met him through Ian's uh, newsletter, and then he and I have picked up conversation a little bit uh, through Facebook. But more importantly, as I introduced him to one of my students, Mr. John Alice, John heads up the Mountain Yard Refugee Assistance Program, and these people have problems that you cannot imagine that... Uh, are still going on to this day. It's some of the stories John tells me sounds like something that may have happened in the 13th century. It can be pretty gruesome. And it's amazingly and disappointingly brutal what people can actually do to one another voluntarily. Well, on my personal Facebook page, I introduced John to Carl's work in child recovery, and here is what John wrote me. Quote, This is interesting, Tim. Unfortunately, human trafficking is a real problem in Southeast Asia, as many of the governments turn a blind eye to it, and in some cases, they are complicit in it for profit. It's always a very delicate situation, and it has to be well thought out, because if you fail, a lot of people can disappear into their prison systems. We were very successful this week in reuniting a nine-year-old girl with her family. And you can only imagine the gut-wrenching of how they felt the past three and a half years without her. Success in this case has really made my Christmas. Another really great organization that I'm doing some work with in Vietnam is the Blue Dragon Foundation. They not only can attempt the rescues, but also provide a safe place to live, education, and food as well as a positive and nurturing environment to counter the horror that many of them had to live with. If you want to find out more about John's work in helping the refugees and some of these problems that they're having to deal with and trying to rescue people, give them medicine, food, uh, put an eight-year-old back with their family, I mean, there's some real stories out there, go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash refugee. And I wanted to bring this to your attention because since the time that I I had episode 107, John and Carl have actually been spending time communicating back and forth and going to try to work together when John goes over to Thailand here pretty soon. And it just kind of reminded me that Kung Fu Podcast was designed for us as martial artists to look more toward the similarities and common goals and objectives that we have. We may share different styles and theories and things along the line and even reasons why we practice. But it doesn't mean you can't find common ground to not just help yourself, but to help someone else along the way. And speaking of helping someone else along the way, Kai Morgan, from episodes 105 and 106, is still having an impact 
because we took one of her essays that was based on a book and a lecture from Dr. Ben Spatz that was all about what the body can do. Well, a listener had written in, he had written me one email, and then he followed it up with another, the one I'm about to share with you. And he says, Sorry, Sifu Tim, I just finished the second part of the three parts of martial arts training podcast. You must understand how much this series has connected with me. As a drama and English teacher, a professional actor, and a writer, the innate sense of culling multiple levels of understanding to arrive at the truth of autodidactic work is profound. This is the next iteration of Marshall Self for me. My new teacher comments, Hmm, well, I see you've been practicing that. Now, consider this. And then he goes on to change the technique completely based on a differing giving situation, but only after seeing us truly dig in it and mess with it. Kai and Dr. Spatz seamlessly integrate notions of honing a craft and the elemental nature of play activity. As a counselor, yes, I do wear a lot of hats. I've witnessed firsthand the ability for such work to heal others. Creative arts therapy abounds with such ideals. I humbly admit, it is also why so many of my martial arts brethren over the years sought out training studying, learning, integrating. You get the point. I could go on, but I've already written you a novel, so I'll end it here. Thanks for all you do. M.K. Well, thank you, M.K., for writing me, staying in touch with me, and sharing your thoughts and how the episodes and some of the things that you're picking up has value to you, how you're going to use it in the future. And if you find value in the program, You can support Kung Fu Podcast and me by going to kungfupodcast.com forward slash support. We have our affiliate links there that you can use that cost you no extra dollars at all. There's just a number of ways that you could pick out other things that you could do that helps me do research. Or if nothing else, I'd appreciate it if you just tell a friend what you think about the program. Now, before I get into the main topic, let me introduce to you, if you have not heard this program before, a friend of mine, Mr. Ian Abernathy. Ian is across the pond, and he's a practical martial artist. You can get to his website at kungfupodcast.com forward slash Ian. Well, Ian had posted, he had jotted down some things on the form about the thoughts on headbutting, and it did intrigue me because a lot of folks don't practice headbutting. But when I was learning martial arts and when as I'm teaching martial arts, Headbutting is something that is integrated into the work. It's not necessarily a separate technique that I pull out and say, okay, you know, you're going to throw 20 jabs and then 20 headbutts. That's not how we do it. It's uh, basically woven into the work. So if you get too jammed up or if you're trying to find that one extra thing that you can do, what do you have at your access when the crap starts hitting the fan? So I went on over to Ian's forum, and as usual, the folks there have sometimes various opinions, but they're always respectful in the way that they present them, and it's one of the reasons why I love going over there. But as you get ready to listen to the thoughts on headbutting, which I have titled because of some of the other research and other things I've added into it, uh, and looking at these thoughts and taking them saying, well, these are the thoughts, but are they real? We're going to be looking at the three dimensions of ranking violence because headbutting, as you're going to hear, is a violent act. 
But where and at what degree do you put it? You're going to hear contrasting arguments about its effectiveness, about its place, about whether or not it's tactically sound, if it's a weaker technique, if it's just a sneaky technique, or is it considered just as violent as punching someone or pulling a knife? Without further ado, let's look at ranking violence in three dimensions, an episode inspired by Ian Abernathy's Thoughts on Headbutting. Ian's post on his forum starts with, This quote is from Morinobu Ituman's 1934 book, The Study of Karate Techniques, as translated by Mario McKenna. In the book it says, quote, The forehead is used to strike when the opponent is close to you, or when he has grabbed your arm or sleeve. It can be used to strike the opponent's face, including the nose, mouth, and ears, or the neck or chest. Of course, it is preferable to use your hands and feet for attacking and defending. However, if you are unable to use them, the head can be used with powerful results. Morinobu goes on to say that the top of the head, the side of the head, and the back of the head can be used in the same way. The headbutt is referred to in other texts too, of course, such as karate or judo, and we explicitly see it in kata, such as kuru rumfa. However, it would be fair to say that the headbutt is not practiced as much as other striking techniques. And there are probably two main reasons for this. First is people consider it violent and uncouth. The second is that the fact that it is banned in most combat sports, for example, boxing, karate, mainstream MMA, and etc., which undoubtedly contributes to point one despite the fact that it is far less effective than a punch. The UK Sentencing Guidelines for Assault, titled Assault Definitive Guidelines 2011, lists headbutting as an aggravating factor indicating higher culpability. Ian points out that in those guidelines it says, quote, Use of weapon or weapon equivalent, for example, shod foot, headbutting, use of acid, use of animal. End quote. Of course, this is looking at people convicted of assault, people who have acted illegally, and not people who have employed self-defense, meaning they have acted legally and therefore would not be guilty of assault. However, it does show you that the legal system in the UK sees headbutting as belonging in the same category as setting a dog onto someone, using a weapon, or throwing acid at them. This is obviously ridiculous because a headbutt is way more innocuous than those things, both in terms of potential for physical injury and psychological trauma. Ian continues, It would seem to me that whoever has written these guidelines has a very Queensberry Rules view of violence and has, hence, put the headbutt in way more serious company than it really deserves. For example, it is considered an unsporting and violent method that would only be employed by truly dangerous people who need to be locked up for longer. Again, this takes us back to one and two above. So let me summarize what Ian has just said here for us. He has set the direction of the episode with these paragraphs. 
It was these points that set me off to get in touch with a scholastic researcher and psychological researcher, and this is also a good time here to remind you that Kung Fu Podcast is an effort to research, not to prove or disprove anything. If I go through the research, and as of today, it supports our theories and observations, great. If not, then we might just sit back and say, well, why not? How do we come up with this? But either way, it's not about proving someone right or someone wrong. It's about doing the due diligence and finding out, is this working for us today? And this is the kind of approach you take in your martial arts training. If a technique doesn't work for you, why? Is it your approach? Is it your commitment? Is it your angles? If it's not working, dig into it. Because there's usually reasons why or why not it does or does not work for you. But let's consider Ian's point so far by bringing in Dr. Magda Osman. She did a massive study, four studies in one, and it's titled, How Many Slaps is Equivalent to One Punch? Let me say that again. How Many Slaps is Equivalent to One Punch? New Approaches to Assessing the Relative Severity of Violent Acts. The article was printed in the journal titled, The Psychology of Violence, October 2016. Dr. Magda Osman works at the Queen Mary University of London in the Department of Biological and Experimental Psychology. In her objective, she says, quote, The study assesses the extent to which responses to different judgment tasks align consistently to reveal underlying rank orderings of violent acts by their level of severity. The methods, there were four studies performed in this one study with over 540 people. Participants were presented with a variety of tasks. The first was the ranking task, where you were supposed to report your ranking of a violent act from least to most violent. Then there was the trade-off task, which was where you were supposed to report how many of less violent acts is equivalent to one more violent act. And then the compensation task, where you were supposed to report the financial compensation needed that would exactly compensate you for being a victim of such a violent act. For these tasks, they were required to consider eight violent acts. All right, so let me summarize here again. You've heard Ian's initial thoughts and observations. I just introduced Dr. Osmond's study that sounds like it's going to scientifically research these observations. And based on what we know so far, headbutting is an effective technique and it's violent. But you've also been provided some foreshadowing of the UK's cultural perception of headbutting and where it may come from. Now let's go back to Ian's form and what he has to say next. Because this is where Ian is going to take us from the martial view of his, his effectiveness as a tool and the U.K.'s cultural perception that, that headbutting is considered uh, uncouth because of things like the Queensbury rules, perhaps, and how it is generally banned in combative sports. Because now he's going to walk us through the judicial realm. And Ian writes, quote, So one thing we need to consider with headbutts is that they are deemed violent by the general public and the legal system. While this is invariably down to false ideas and assumptions about the method, it's still something that needs considered when factoring in the likely view of judges, 
jurors, law enforcement, and witnesses if we use the headbutt in self-defense. The law on self-defense should not see this being an issue if you truly have acted honestly and instinctively in the face of what you honestly believe to be a threat. We must also remember that UK law states it is unreasonable to expect people to judge to a nicety the level of force used. However, laws, no matter how perfect they are on paper, are put in effect by we fallible humans, and hence there is a possibility that the cultural view of the headbutt could predispose people to think in a detrimental way about you and your actions. End quote. So we're going to put a bookmark in here and look at what Ian just shared with us where we're looking at the legal system and the interfaces because the laws are, of course, are on paper like Ian was saying, and we have people who are trying to enforce those laws. We have people who are witnessing both the actions and the uh, violences that occurred that broke those laws. Uh, if you're ever a juror, you're going to have to listen to these, these things and perhaps even see videos or pictures of them. Uh, and there's all types of interfaces that human beings are going to bring their feelings to the table, and you have to be aware of it. But one of the questions that came up along the way, and it's part of what Dr. Osmond's going to be researching, is does the legal system always represent the perception of the general public? Now, taking a prosecution's point, I could pick out a topic that uh, happens here in the U.S. all the time. Is, for example, should you be allowed to grow and use your own marijuana? Well, with a few exceptions, the legal systems say no, yet the general public predominantly says yes. So there's a lot of feelings there, and sometimes there's a massive gap. Now, my point is, is not whether or not it should be legal or not, is that the general public and legal system may not always be in sync. However, predominantly, I believe that the legal system and the general public are in sync, but not always. And even when they are in sync, perhaps not to the same level of intensity. So it might be, yes, I see that being against the law, but not as much as the law says it should be considered against the law, for example, or vice versa, where you can say, no, no, it was just a tap, but because of the culture, it may be considered a lot more violent or a lot more aggressive than it actually was. So our feelings will interpret how these things are played out in this three-dimensional look at the ranking of violence. But the good news here is we don't have to guess. Dr. Osmond is going to test it for us. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me in episode number 108, where we took Agent of Action, Ian Abernathy's post at his form titled Thoughts on Headbutting and put it together with the research from Dr. Magda Osmond out of the University of London. We wanted to develop a three-dimensional look at the ranking of violence. In the next episode, we're going to be taking a real detailed look at the descriptions of the studies that she puts together, the three hypotheses that she develops based on this research, and how you begin to look at the ranking of violence from a three-dimensional point of view. What are some of the problems with current tools that rank violence? And how does a layman, people like you and I, interpret violence as compared to how lawmakers or law enforcement may interpret violence? 
is the general public actually able to reliably interpret the severity of violence? Thank you. As always, I am genuinely grateful that you include me as part of your martial arts journey. This is Sifu T.W. Smith, and I'll be talking with you again soon.